Welcome back to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast. On today's episode, my conversation with Dr. Katie Holton. Dr. Holton runs the Nutritional Neuroscience Lab at American University. There, she studies the role of nutrition, and especially certain dietary components and food additives, on neurotransmission and neurological illness. I first met Dr. Holton when I went back to school, and I became a research assistant in her lab. It was an amazing experience. The things that I learned there totally changed my life and the way that I feed my family. I am so grateful that Dr. Holton was willing to come on this podcast and share her wisdom, her story, and the future of the field of nutritional neuroscience with me. So please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Katie Holton. Dr. Holton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for being here. So let's get right to it. I am very curious to know how you entered into the field that you're currently in. When you began your journey into academia, so maybe as a 17, 18-year-old college student, what were you initially interested in studying, and how did you end up in your current field? Well, I definitely did not set out to be a nutritional neuroscientist. That wasn't even a thing, and uh, so I wouldn't even have known about it. Um, So when I was growing up as a teenager, I ran um, a babysitting and house-sitting business. I was very, um, it was very lucrative for a young person. I didn't make very much per hour, but I um, actually was able to save thousands of dollars. And so I was very entrepreneurial, and I also worked in the fitness industry, in my teen years, and I had danced and stuff growing up, rode horses competitively, was very active, you know. Um, but I really got in, interested in in the fitness field. I got interested in diet and how diet might be affecting things. So, but because of my entrepreneurial background, when I got to college and I was exploring, I wanted to take classes in nutrition, and um, I had an advisor say, "You really should major in business." because you are entrepreneurial and you need some business knowledge. And my goal at the time was thinking, I want to start my own business after I graduate. Never had thought of graduate school. Uh, Nobody in my family had ever gone to graduate school. So um, that wasn't even in my thought process at all. I just thought, I'm going to start my own business. And um, so that's what I did. I majored in business and I minored in nutrition. And um, I found myself, I was working through the, in the fitness industry throughout kind of putting myself through school. I worked throughout. And then afterwards, I started my own business, um, got married to my husband. Um, we started having a family, uh, bought a house, you know, kind of started putting down roots. And um, it worked out really nicely. My husband worked nearby, could come home and help with the kids, and I could go have uh, appointments with clients. And um, so... Then I just found myself like drawn to the research constantly. I was, I was working with this select group where I was working with a lot of people that had worked out for many, many years and weren't, they were having things go wrong. You know, mm. they still had some medical issues. And, um, and I noticed the power of nutrition and the power of bringing the nutrition back in. But I didn't have a big enough knowledge base. And so I found myself just having all these questions and hypotheses. And I was drawn back to school. I was like, I have to go back to grad school and study this. I am fascinated by it. um, And I need more knowledge. Um, And so I did that. I had kind of two competing interests. I was really interested in kind of the population public health side. But I was also interested in the more basic science and understanding the nutritional science 
science side of things. So I got a master's in public health and epidemiology. Um, so a lot of, um, you know, stats focus in that and understanding on a, a population level about big data. And then um, I was uh, went back for my PhD in nutritional sciences. And then as I was starting that program, I um, had someone close to me who got very sick, who's a young mom, and um, she just had her health go downhill. And she was one of those people who you would perceive as just a super healthy individual, was very active, worked out all the time, and she appeared to have a really healthy diet. And um, all of a sudden, she had gotten an infection that went mm. undiagnosed for a while, ended up being bacterial. Mm. They put her on antibiotics, and she got better. Her infection went away. But she started going downhill. And started getting all these weird symptoms. So she started having pain, pain in all of her joints. She started having major fatigue and pain in her muscles. And then she was having things where she said uh, she was having trouble remembering things. And she couldn't remember her own phone number. She was having times where she was so fatigued she had to lay down with her eyes closed but not to sleep. Her, she said her mind felt like it was racing, but that she couldn't move. It was really weird. And so I thought at the time, I was like, what is going on to my friend? So she was obviously very scared and ended up um, seeing different uh, doctors. And uh, the doctors couldn't, well, first they were telling her she probably had MS or a brain tumor. Oh and yes, very scary. Um, so she ends up meeting with a neurologist. They run all these tests. They can't find anything wrong with her. So then they tell her it's all in her head. Mm. And she was continually getting worse. Um, so she was having times where she couldn't pick up objects. So she was like, she would go to pick something up and it was like her brain wasn't telling her hand to squeeze hard enough to hold on to it, which we see that in ALS patients yeah. commonly. And um, so she was having oh, headaches and just um, all these weird things occur, tons of symptoms coming on. And they all came on together. So... It made sense to me that there was something happening to her neurologically, um, but the doctors kind of blew her off, didn't know what to do with her. And, um, and so I was so just disheartened by this. And here I was in grad school, and I was like, well, I'm going to do some research and <laughs> see what I can find, right? But um, at the time, I was, I was Googling people who had symptoms like her because I didn't even know what to start searching on. Like, what's right. the name of this condition, right? Um, and I started seeing these widespread chronic pain conditions came up. And so it was things like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, Gulf War illness, you know. And a lot of times at the medical establishment at the time, and even now, to some extent, um, they just didn't know what to do with these patients. And um, But that was the closest thing I could find that fit um, the spectrum of symptoms she was experiencing. She was having everything that you can imagine, like her sleep be affected. She was having memory, big-time memory problems, massive fatigue, pain throughout her body. And so um, I started like looking into these conditions, and I ended up uh, coming across a blog, and these people who had these symptoms who were talking to one another. And a few of them mentioned that they felt better if they avoided aspartame and MSG. Mm. And so I was like, huh, what do aspartame and MSG have in common? And so I started studying them. And when you break them down to their individual parts, what they have in common is aspartate and glutamate, which are two amino acids that are negatively charged, but that also happen to have function as neurotransmitters. Mm. And so I started going down this role um, or road of neuroscience. 
And so in addition to getting my PhD in nutritional sciences, I added on a lot of neuroscience coursework. I talked to my advisor. I said, I'm really interested in how diet affects the brain. I need to figure out what's going on here. And so um, I added the coursework. I ended up creating the diet that I study to this day, the low glutamate diet. Um, And I tested it on my friend and her symptoms completely went away. Wow. And I said, I'm sold. Yeah. What is going on here? Um, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. And I said, this is what I have to study and no one's doing it and there's something going on here. And so it has led me down a a huge path and led me to become a nutritional neuroscientist and um, which is kind of an emerging field um, and there aren't very many of us but it is growing and huge growing interest in the field as well. Uh, Yeah I mean I'm growing an interest in the field every day. (laughs) It's very exciting to me on a lot of levels because as you said the field didn't exist as you began to pursue it, you really pursued it out of curiosity and necessity. You know, mm-hmm. someone's life was at stake. Someone that you saw suffering, you found a way to help them. And then, of course, obviously now with that diet, you're doing a lot of research with the aim of helping many different populations. Mm-hmm. And we'll get back to that. Um, but I am curious to hear a little bit more about the field in general and how it is emerging and um, any of the challenges that it's currently experiencing. And I'm also curious if, if there is overlap or differences in the difference or similarities between the field of nutritional psychiatry, which is getting a little press right now. Um, there's a famous psychiatrist out of Harvard who has a book out about um, using ketogenic diets for certain illnesses. Um, so I'm curious, like, are those fields mostly overlapped or do they diverge in meaningful ways? They totally overlap, Um, but it's, I think, how people want to define themselves. Mm -hmm. And so we do have uh, people who are part of a a group I'm also part of, the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research. Um, And I'm part of that group because I see psychiatric effects in my work. Um, And so we definitely are having seen widespread improvement in mental health. That makes perfect sense because... The only difference between neurology and psychiatry is that psychiatry is really interested in more mood effects and neurology tends to have more body effects. But the same system is affected. As a matter of fact, you see very similar drugs used <laughs> across right. those fields. So it, it's because we, we tend to affect neurotransmission with the medications that are used. So, yes, they overlap quite a lot. But if you talk to individuals in a field, a neurologist is going to consider themselves different than a psychiatrist, right? And so I think you'll hear people who say they're interested in nutritional psychiatry. That just means they're interested only in mood symptoms. For me, I'm not only interested in mood symptoms. I'm interested in the whole package because what's fascinating to me is, especially with chronic widespread pain conditions, we see mood symptoms very commonly in people that have widespread chronic pain in addition to problems with sleep and problems with cognitive function and gastrointestinal symptoms. And so what's amazing is the whole spectrum of symptoms tends to get better when we treat them. So it's not that one thing is getting better. As a matter of fact, I never see that. I don't see a case where 
you can just affect pain, but you don't you see their psychiatric symptoms stay. Right. It doesn't happen. And it's because you're really improving nervous system function overall. Right. And and so I think that's a really important point is that um, we need to kind of quit separating the body from the brain. Um, historically, just to give you an example, um, in the nutrition field, um, historically everything was about the body. The brain was really ignored. Um, in the neuroscience field, a lot of people still kind of cut off the head and just want to focus on the brain right. and not care about the body. And so we have a, a huge disconnect going on in both of those fields. And so here I'm a person who's spanning both of them. And I can tell you I'm, I'm the, the one screaming, come on, guys, the body works together. We need to stop cutting off the head. We have to pay attention to the whole body. And what is good for the body is also good for the brain. And so um, and sometimes when there's neurological symptoms, we need to be a little more precise. And this is a precision nutrition approach where we really have to focus on the nervous system function to improve the symptoms. Absolutely. So let's break it down a little bit for people who are listening who have not talked to you for many hours at length, as I have, about what glutamate is and and where it can be found in the diet. Mm -hmm. So the main focus of your research right now is the low glutamate diet, as you mentioned. And glutamate is both an amino acid and the most abundant neurotransmitter in the brain, right? Correct. It's an excitatory neurotransmitter. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's stimulating, it's wakeful, it's uh, modulating anxiety and and things like that. Yeah, you can can look at it that way. That's more of a symptom approach. But, you know, at a very basic level, its job is to get the next neuron excited to release its neurotransmitter. So it is excitatory in that sense. But we can have a situation like in chronic pain conditions, we have something called central sensitization. And it's really uh, where you have this kind of increased connectivity that occurs throughout the nervous system that allows, it's almost like you're turning the dial up on your nervous system and Mm. you're allowing there to be more excitation across the board. And so it's like really what we're trying to do is turn the dial back down (laughs) and lower that excitation everywhere so that things can function normally. Yeah. This is a little bit abstract, but it makes me think about how um, in many fields, in medicine, in food, we tend to have this framework, um, at least within Western culture, that more is more, right? Like more is always better. If there's a healthy food, then more of it must be better. If there's a fun activity, then more of it must be better. And that's rarely true in physiology, right? It's always about balance. It's always about homeostasis. So as you were saying that, I was thinking, well, yeah, as a culture, we're more connected than ever. And we keep saying, it's so great. It's so great how connected we are. You know, you can call somebody across the world. You can get a package across the world. You can send a message in one second. And it is it is great, just like excitatory neurotransmission is really useful and keeps you alive, you know, keeps you awake, keeps you breathing. But more is not always more. Like too much of a good thing can be bad, dangerous, detrimental. Yeah, and well, definitely with glutamate, that is the case. We um, so it's it's called an excitotoxin because it has the ability to overexcite a neuron to the point that it dies right. if it's in too high of an amount. And so, an example of that would be something like stroke, where you have stroke can be caused because you have a lack of blood flow to the brain that's caused by a blood clot, but you have cell death that occurs. That cell death can cause the release of glutamate, and you get excitotoxic damage where that 
ends up leading to more cell death. So you have, you want to stop that process. Um, But on a smaller scale, even if it doesn't cause cell death, it's going to cause dysfunction. So yeah, you're right. More is not better. But at the same, same, or opposing side, we don't want to block glutamate. If we block glutamate, we also cause symptoms. We need glutamate to be there. It's actually vital, for example, for memory function. It is vitally important. Um, So we don't want to get rid of it. We just want it to function normally. Right. In a balanced, normal, calm way. Right. So for the average person who has never thought about this and Mm -hmm. um, is eating maybe a even above average diet, you know, a health focused diet, Mm -hmm. what might be some of the sneakiest or least suspected sources of dietary free glutamate? And can you explain how the glutamate becomes free and why that might make it problematic? Well, so the majority of exposure in American diets is usually from food additives. And these food additives are what we call flavor enhancing. And that's because glutamate has the ability to stimulate neurons in our tongue and it makes food taste good. Uh, So we like the taste of glutamate. Um, It's only in its free form that it's flavor enhancing. So if, um, and what that free form, all that means is it's not bound together in a protein. So for example, if you eat animal protein sources, like someone eats a steak, for example, that is a very complex protein structure where we have all of our amino acids hooked hooked together, but they're also folded. They, they're The body makes chains and then basically folds those chains in these complex structures. All of that has to be broken down. It's a very slow process where we unfold the protein when we digest it. We have enzymes that start acting on that protein and can basically break off chunks, what we call di or tripeptides, where you have two or three amino acids together, and then slowly breaks it down into individual amino acids, which are then absorbed across the intestinal cells. So that is a slow process. And in if you eat animal protein, it's in a very balanced fashion. All of the amino acids we need are actually present in that protein. And so you're not getting a high amount of just one amino acid. Um, free forms of glutamate would be things like the food additives I mentioned where they're using free glutamate is present. And that's usually from processing in some manner. Um, but then you can also have free sources in a few foods that are kind of things that may be perceived as healthy foods. For example, um, a person could make a homemade bone broth, and that bone broth is considered a health food and would be good for you otherwise. But if a person is sensitive to glutamate, that can cause a reaction. Um, Another thing would be protein powder. Protein powders are very commonly used by people who are trying to be very healthy, and they're just a hydrolyzed protein. What that means is when we hydrolyze a protein, we're breaking apart it into its individual amino acids. Mm. And so it becomes a source of free glutamate. Um, So the friend I mentioned who, when I started this research, she was using protein powder. Mm. And, you know, she was eating salads with salad dressing that had these additives in them that also... Parmesan cheese. Um, Aged cheeses are also a natural source of free glutamate. And that's just because the aging process breaks down that protein and frees up the glutamate. It doesn't just free up glutamate. It also frees up aspartate. I should just mention that quickly. Aspartate is also an excitotoxin. Um, and it, it has very similar properties. It can it has the ability to dock in one of glutamate receptors. Mm-hmm. And so it can have that excitotoxic action as well. 
which is where the aspartame actually came into that story, right. was from aspartate. So just to mention that quickly. So if someone's having you know a really healthy, low-calorie day, they're getting up, they're going to the gym, they're having their pea protein shake, <laughs> and then with lunch they're having a Diet Coke, and they're having a salad and they want it to be flavorful but not too caloric. So they're having, you know, maybe some chicken with shaved Parmesan on it. Right. And then for dinner, they're maybe making a, a pea protein pasta to have a high protein pasta. And then they have migraines and they're wondering, what's going on here? Right. I'm super healthy. I work out. I hydrate well. Right. And there's all these secret sources of processed proteins in their diet. Right. that are causing this over-excitation. Yeah, and we're seeing this a lot with a lot of the foods that are being created, these vegan foods that are being created in laboratories. They have to add a lot of food additives to make them function and taste like something you would want to eat. Um, so they tend to be high sources of these additives. Uh, so if a person is trying to follow some sort of specialized diet, even though they perceive that diet as being healthy in many ways, can actually be making them sick if they're sensitive. Right. Well, this is where I'll spiral out into my own personal story, which um, very lucky for me, I met you. And it's funny because I was thinking when you were saying, oh, when I went to school, this field didn't even exist. Well, same thing for me. If I had gone to school when I was, you know, quote unquote, supposed to go to school, none of these things would have been brought up. I would never have encountered this work. But because I took this winding path and ended up in school as a mom of three who returned to school while my toddler was having this clinical sleep issue going on, I never would have encountered your work and never would have figured out what was going on with her. Or maybe I would have, but not quite as easily and quickly. Maybe I could have Googled you. Um, <laughs> but luckily, I found you in person. So I ended up at a situation where because when I was a child, I had a dairy sensitivity. And then I developed a gluten sensitivity, or probably that was always the underlying cause, to be honest. And then I had my first daughter, and she had her multiple anaphylactic food allergies. And so when you have a child with anaphylactic food allergies, you develop your portfolio of safe and not safe foods. You have your list of foods that will literally kill your child, yeah. <laughs> close their throat, and the ones that won't. And so on my list of safe foods were things that contained pea protein and things that contained rice protein. I mean, things that contained collagen. Um, in fact, one of her early treats that she could have if we were, say, um, to put it just bluntly, at like a normal person's house, someone who doesn't think about allergies at all, mm -hmm. a treat that they might have on hand that she could eat without dying was Jello. That was the one thing like a normal household would have stock that she could have. So gelatin was safe for her. Marshmallows, classic. If she was at a party and kids were eating all kinds of stuff she couldn't have, she could have a marshmallow. So all these foods got, you know, locked in my categorization metric as safe. Won't kill child number one. And then I belonged to like the alternative holistic nutrition world, the gut health world, where collagen and bone broth have a lot of pizzazz. They got a lot of street cred. People will say, oh, you have any problem, collagen, bone broth. That'll fix it. Yeah. Gut issues, heal your gut with collagen. So when I have my second and third children and I'm trying to build up their immune systems and their guts, and I'm not just using, you know, fancy probiotics, but I'm making them collagen smoothies and, yeah. you know, frothing collagen into everything and baking with protein powder to make everything high protein. And then I've got a kid who's a little anxious. Okay, fine. That's sort of normal. And then I have a kid who at 
10 months old, falls and bumps the direct back of her head and develops this um, projectile vomiting. And her doctor told me that she was manipulating me, that she was projectile vomiting to try to manipulate me into taking her out of her crib and that I should leave her in her vomit because she would learn. Wow. And I was like, the thing is, I can tell she can't control it. It's anytime she cries because it wasn't even if she was in her crib, if she would fall and bump her knee. Ever since she hit her head, anytime she cried for longer than three seconds, she would throw up involuntarily. And then that transitioned into this longer term, just wakefulness, just waking up five times a night, always crying when she woke up and just very alert, um, very stimulated. And we kind of just learned to live with it. Um, Mm -hmm. My marriage became like a surviving a war. It was like, Mm -hmm. haven't seen you in weeks, but like, how's it going down there? Like, you know, take turns sleeping in the guest room and take turns being up all night with the kid and just surviving it, right? You do whatever it takes for your kid. And then I was introduced to you, right? I had this magical decision to quit my job, go back to school. (laughs) I end up encountering you and your work. And you were like, have you considered glutamate? You know, and I'm thinking, me? Like, I'm a healthy eater. You know, we eat healthy in our family. And, of course, I only feed her healthy, wholesome things. Um, But I had to admit that I was making protein smoothies for her once in a while, you know, probably a few times a week. Mm -hmm. And she was taking gummy vitamins with gelatin. Mm -hmm. And so we did the experiment. We cleared out the glutamate. And wouldn't you know, she slept through the night. (laughs) And then it became like this instant tell if she had had something that contained glutamate because she would get this uh, just very typical standard response, which tended to be uh, loss of bladder control. It would make her wake up and pee multiple times during the night. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she had been potty trained since she was like 18 months old. So it was very not in her personality to lose bladder control. Mm -hmm. Um, But any time, once the glutamate was cleared out, and by the way, This I have seen across the board for anyone who is eating a common thing that actually is bothering them, and then they pull it out. Mm -hmm. When it comes back, the reaction is way worse. So I would love to get your take on that. For example, like people who are eating gluten all the time, and then I'm like, hey, try going Mm gluten-free for a month. And they're like, I eat gluten every day, and I I think I'm fine. They pull it out for a month, and then upon reintroduction, it's like Mm -hmm. night and day. They instantly feel terrible. Mm -hmm. So that was the case with her. Like when she was eating glutamate all the time or on a regular basis, like, yeah, she was wakeful at night, but she wasn't peeing her pants. She wasn't having migraines. But once it was out of her diet completely, then when it was reintroduced, she had this like – day and night response to it. Like it was so obvious. And one that I'll never forget was this pasta because I like I called you. I was like, oh my <laughs> God, like put this on your warning sheet for people in your study. Do not buy this pasta because I bought it thinking high protein pasta. It's made from bean flour, totally fine. Didn't scrutinize the label carefully enough. Yeah. They had added pea protein to it. She ate a bowl of this pasta and it took three days. And it's it's like always three days. It took three days for it to clear her system. And for those three days, she woke up five times a night. She peed her pants. And it was just like this spiral. 
So that was my personal introduction into the world of glutamate, mm-hmm. and it's only gotten more interesting since and, and more fascinating. And I was very fortunate to be able to be a part of the lab and to even develop some recipes for the lab and, mm-hmm. and to read some of the food diaries of people in the studies and to really learn about what goes on behind the scenes there. Um, so thank you, by the way, for <laughs> saving Frida's brain. You're welcome. Um, you you actually you bring up in your story a couple things that we should probably highlight for people, and that's what what appears to cause sensitivity. And Frida's case is a great example of that. So we tend to see something before the onset of the sensitivity. So it's not that diet changes, you know. And right. like you saw, you were feeding the same diet to her the whole time. Really, what happened was the head injury. Right. And so we tend to see a very common trend where it's after something like a head injury or an infection or a massive amount of stress, including things that cause PTSD. So we're talking big stressors. Um, But at the very least, things like, you know, moving, divorce, uh, starting starting a new job. I haven't... In birth is different. Um, I don't think of birth as a stressor. Birth, you have a massive hormonal change right. that happens. And so um, hormones, there is an, actually an interaction with estrogen, um, that uh-huh. estrogen tends to be protective. So if you have a massive change in estrogen, you can have an effect on mm-hmm. um, a kind of a glutamate type effect. Yeah. But uh, that's a little bit different. Um, from this sensitivity, it tends to be things like head injury and infection and massive stress. Um, we work with veterans too, and we also see it after neurotoxic exposures. All of these things affect the blood-brain barrier uh, reliably, and so there's, you know, it appears that there is an effect on the blood-brain barrier that's potentially going on. Um, but I'm so happy that Frida, you were able to find that, and Frida's been able to feel healthy and not have that effect. Yes. The effect on sleep that you mentioned is so common. We see that across the board, that sleep improves dramatically in our subjects and our studies. So I'm so glad she was able to benefit. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, it really changed her life. And um, I've I've told you this story, but she is this little five-year-old and if you ask her, you know, what what do you eat or what do you not eat? She's like, well, I don't eat gluten and I don't eat glutamate. <laughs> <laughs> and she can kind of explain what glutamate is. She, you know, can't tell you it's a abundant neurotransmitter, you know, but she can tell you that it's yeah. in these certain foods and she knows what to avoid. And, and she's very good about, you know, checking and talking about it. So even at age five, and I know she'll even get better at it, um, she's an advocate for herself and she's able to speak on it. And she is... I would say, across the board, less sensitive to it now than she was closer to her head injury. Mm -hmm. And then we do see that, actually. We see a healing that can happen um, where people become less sensitive when it's caused by a head injury um, over time if they can stay away from it. But And I've even seen cases where um, there was a person who had migraines after a head injury um, in response to glutamate consumption, and that got, that got lessened, so they were able to get more glutamate in the diet and not react, got a subsequent head injury, took them right back to yeah. extremely sensitive. Yeah, that was my entire—she'll probably be in therapy one day talking about me chasing her around when she was like a toddler telling her not to bump her head yeah. because after I realized that the head injury had predisposed her to this sensitivity and I saw that she was on a healing path, I became obsessed with her not bumping her head. Right. And when a child is three and they attend a preschool where they play outside all day long, 
that is almost impossible to avoid. Like, they're going right. to bump their head. So the extent to which I became that mom that was like, don't bump your head. Don't bump your head. Right. I'm sure it'll come up someday with her therapist, and I, I'm sorry. But I just really wanted to heal that blood-brain barrier. I was so yeah. committed. I remain committed. Um, we see that, actually. You know, it's hard. Um, kids are—my husband coaches soccer, so I'm a soccer example for you. But um, it is very common. You know, we see kids that get concussions, that have right. concussions while they're playing. And then a parent, you know, wants them to heal. They get cleared to come back. But the parent's like, I don't want you heading the ball. Right. But, of course, you know, that's part of soccer. They want you heading the ball. Right. But um, but we'll see kids, you know, whose parents are like, no, you duck if it comes near your head. <laughs> because understandably, you know, that healing of the brain is very important. Right. And what about, this is a little bit tangential, but in thinking about the blood-brain barrier and and thinking about the potential of healing and then also thinking about how there are drugs that are given to people, say, with PTSD or chronic pain conditions that might be blocking glutamate. Um, How does that potentially or does it potentially delay the healing process? Like if you have a chronic condition and then you're taking a pharmaceutical that's blocking glutamate reception, let's say, but then you want, you discover the low glutamate diet, you want to take that approach, but first you have to maybe come off of that pharmaceutical, does that process of the body sort of rebalancing its neurotransmission and its reception, does that delay the process? Does it make it at all more challenging initially? Um, I would say yes, it might in a way, um, just because when our body's going to counteract anything that's done to it. So if you put a medication in, it's not as common to block glutamate. The the more typical approach would be to increase GABA. Mm. So GABA is our main inhibitory neurotransmitter. And so you can cause depression of the nervous system function by giving more a GABAergic drug. So that's more typically an approach that's used. Uh, so if someone's on a GABAergic drug, like gabapentin, for example, right. that then what happens is when they have to be weaned off of that medication, at first they're going to see the effects of glutamate because you're taking away that. GABA effect, but the body will go back toward homeostasis. So right. the body will start producing more GABA again and more receptors for GABA. It'll stop that regulation it did, and that will help kind of get things back to an even keel. And then the dietary approach could be taken. Um, so yeah, you have a little bit of an effect that has to be removed from medications. Uh, I think a big important point that people really need to understand is that medications not fixing the problem most of the time, especially with neurological medication, we are really trying to affect neurotransmission in some way. So we're putting something into the body that's changing neurotransmission, but our body knows that's abnormal. And so our body tries to counteract that. And it doesn't matter what the medication is. It could be an SSRI or, or something else that's not even, the aim is not to affect glutamate. In that case, the aim would be to try to increase serotonin levels our body compensates for that. And so the drug will stop its effectiveness over time, and you might see your physician increase the dosage. The reason for that is that your body's opposing the action of that medication. So speaking of opposing actions, let's talk about hangxiety. You know what I'm talking about? Because you lectured on this at one point, and it was really eye-opening for me. And I hear more and more people in my daughter's generation talking about this and Gen Z talking about it. So let's break down 
hangxiety from a GABA glutamate perspective? Yes. Okay. So alcohol is GABAergic. Um, so it has an, an ability to basically inhibit the nervous system like GABA does. Uh, so what it makes it makes people feel better at the moment, right? So maybe someone who has anxiety, they take in some alcohol and they think, oh, this, my anxiety feels lessened, you know, might make you sleepy. So it f- feels like it would be good for anxiety and good for sleep. But what our brain does is our brain says, this is over-inhibition. And over-inhibition to your brain is very scary because it, that's actually what controls your breathing, for example. If we over-inhibit our nervous system, we stop breathing. So our body doesn't want that. And it says too much inhibition. Let's produce more glutamate internally in our brain. And so it drives this production to counteract that inhibition by producing more glutamate to make more excitation. So what happens in the middle of the night is the alcohol starts wearing off because your body is processing it. And now your brain has produced more glutamate so now you're going to have an over-excitation effect, which tends to cause anxiety. And so you can imagine a person with anxiety tends to have high glutamate to begin with, and then they might be taking alcohol to try to treat their own anxiety at the moment, which is actually leading to more production of glutamate and hence worse anxiety in the long run. And you can have the same thing happen from medications. Um, right. So you can take a medication, be given a medication to treat your anxiety. Like Xanax. Exactly. And you can have the same thing happen internally. And so that's not what we want, right? So from a dietary approach, we're trying to lower glutamate to actually lower brain glutamate levels to try to regulate that process so we can calm everything down. And um, this question just came up to me because, um, as I mentioned to you earlier, and as I've sort of mentioned on the podcast, I'm wearing a continuous glucose monitor Mm -hmm. to see how my body responds to food from a glucose perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And one thing that I've noticed is that under periods of stress, even without me taking in exogenous glucose, my body will release glucose from my liver and jack up my blood sugar in response to stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's so, normal. Right. Yeah, yes. that's a normal response that but for what, fight or flight. Right, exactly. And thank you to my body. I know that if a lion came, I'd be prepared. <laughs> yes. I have the data. But what I'm the reason I bring this up is that I'm wondering, because um, part of me was thinking, well, okay, if somebody wants to reduce their overall glutamate levels, Maybe they should just reduce their protein intake completely, just reduce protein overall. And then I thought, wait a second, the body can produce glutamate. So if we're not giving it a healthy, balanced, consistent, nourishing amount, will that actually stress it out and cause it to surge glutamate? Well, I I should mention you don't need to restrict protein. As a matter of fact, we see that the opposite is true and that people do very well when they have good, adequate quality protein and like whole, whole proteins in their diet that are not processed. So that's a very big important point. Right. And so it's not the overall glutamate content. It is really it has to do with this free glutamate. People only react to the free glutamate, never to a glutamate that's bound into a protein. And I think it has to do with that slow processing I was mentioning earlier and how protein gets broken down. And it's in perfect combination with other amino acids. Right. Now, I think 
it is worth mentioning that anything that affects your brain's want to produce glutamate, yes, you could do that without ever affecting dietary intake. And that stress actually is a great example of something that actually leads to glutamate sensitivity, but it it may be because it's affecting blood-brain barrier, but it may be also other effects. Yeah, I mean, just anecdotally, N equals one, this is my story. I was not glutamate sensitive. Like, I was a vegan for years, and I ate a bunch of processed proteins. I drank pea protein shakes. I worked for a company selling pea protein shakes, and I would be, like, driving around town, drinking them as I went, eating nothing but pea protein for a whole day. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, wow. But at the time, feeling great. Not having anxiety, not having sleep issues, et cetera. Mm -hmm. When, as a mother of three, there was a pandemic, and I went back to school full-time, and I had a child who didn't sleep— And I was writing papers late into the night and, you know, keeping up my 4.0 and, like, really pushing it. I became more glutamate sensitive. Luckily, I also was aware of it. So I was able to counter it and just stop consuming it and, you know, balance my stress. But um, for sure, like, the stress played a role for me. I've had a head injury, but that was many years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was not, like, night and day for me in that way. Mm -hmm. It it was very much like the stress burden and the lack of sleep and my body pushing its own glutamate levels up Mm -hmm. caused me to realize that when I put collagen in my coffee, didn't feel so good. Had a little out-of-body experience feeling going on. (laughs) Didn't like how that felt. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's my personal personal experience of it is that stress was enough. Enough stress was enough. Oh, right. And, I mean, that should not be understated. The stress you just described is – dramatic. Um, Students in school are very stressed out these days, all just from school alone. And they're not even trying to do it with three kids at home, (laughs) especially a child not sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. And the not sleeping yourself is actually very stressful on your body. Yeah. And so you you have to add that into the picture that you're actually stressing. The not getting sleep is also stressful. And we can kind of see that cycle in widespread chronic pain patients, right? Because their sleep is negatively affected. Of course. And so, of course, they're not getting sleep. And so you have a lot of things that are happening that basically are perpetuating this cycle. If people have PTSD, they feel like they're constantly having PTSD triggered. Um, but we see that improve on the diet. And it makes sense because PTSD is controlled by your HPA axis. It starts in your brain with your hypothalamus which signals to your pituitary gland in your brain, which then signals to your adrenals, which sit on top of your kidneys. But the the things that are released that cause that response are all triggered. That whole process is started with glutamate and glutamate's effects on the hypothalamus. So it makes beautiful sense that lowering glutamate in the diet would improve that process. It really does. Also, in general, exercise. I would not have survived my stress load in school without moving my body every day. Mm -hmm. I'm someone, and I think this is true for most people, I need to move the stress through my body. I need to put it into my Mm -hmm. muscles. I need to send it out into the air. If I just let it sit on me, it doesn't go well. (laughs) It doesn't go well, and my memory suffers. Everything suffers. Mm -hmm. I I read a book called Spark years ago, Mm -hmm. which is about, like, using exercise physiology to improve, like, cognition and memory. Mm -hmm. And I read it right before I went back to school and it helped me. Um, And actually COVID was a weird benefit because I'd be in class and I'd feel my brain sort of wandering and I would Mm -hmm. get up from the Zoom and do 20 push-ups and then go back 
Right. And I would be, oh, I'm refreshed. Yeah. So I uh, advocate for push-ups in school. You know, let's yeah. just let kids get <laughs> up and walk around. When you sit for too long, it impacts your attention span. Let's let them move. Right. Uh, a little bit less ADD diagnosing, a little bit more push-ups in class. <laughs> one one woman's soapbox. <laughs> um, speaking of topics that make people uncomfortable, I want to talk about the trendiness of a vegan diet and the uh, sort of trendiness among young women to adopt mm-hmm. a very restrictive, calorie-restrictive, and then by proxy nutrient-restricted vegan or vegetarian diet. And then the subsequent rise in mental health issues and how they're usually not treated as related. And what can we do as scientists, as moms, as educators, as advocates to raise awareness about the really intimate connection between nutrition and mental health and specifically around a protein deficient, um, overly processed diet and especially among young women? Oh, such a great question. I think this is something that really needs to be discussed more. And we're seeing a rampant rise in mental health issues, especially in young women who are moving toward veganism. Um, We should start by saying, you know, veganism, um, it may encourage someone to to include a ton of healthy foods into their diet. So when we talk about eating more fruits and vegetables and beans and lentils and nuts and seeds, these are all wonderful, healthy plant foods that everybody should be including in their diet. And so it really is not about whether those foods are healthy or not. The problem comes is that you can't get all of your nutrients from just those foods. And so even if they were choosing to have this kind of healthy whole food diet where they're not kind of prescribing to all of the processed vegan foods that have a lot of food additives in them, they may still have a lot of issues. And that is simply because they're nutrient deficient. So not only are they protein deficient, and actually protein is easier to get, we can get by combination of different protein sources we can try to piecemeal together all of our amino acids. And that's what you hear about, like beans and rice, for example. The protein is not always the biggest issue. It gets the most attention because it's kind of more obvious as Mm -hmm. a macronutrient, but really the micronutrients are the bigger problem. And so if you look, and this is part of what we do in our research, is we teach people where micronutrients are really found in food, not because a food is fortified, but because these foods naturally are actually good sources. And we rank those so people actually learn what to eat. And when you do that, you see that there are multiple micronutrients that all of the best sources are animal food sources. You take something like vitamin B12, which it's only animal sources. Um, I'll just give you one example. We have I have someone in the lab right now who was vegan for a time and she became vitamin B12 deficient, actually went blind in one of her eyes from optic neuritis that was solely caused by a vitamin B12 deficiency. She put animal protein back into her diet and was no longer blind. And this is such an important, striking example to bring up because it's not just mood. It is going to have other effects on your body. Um, But I think it's an important point because everyone, um, it's not common knowledge to understand the importance of protein and these micronutrients in the brain for years the brain was really ignored. So um, when you make neurotransmitters 
the precursor molecule for a lot of our neurotransmitters is an amino acid. So just give serotonin as an example, right? Serotonin is our feel-good mood hormone, right? Our mood neurotransmitter, excuse me. So uh, for us to produce serotonin, we really have to have tryptophan. Tryptophan is in high amounts in things like chicken and turkey. We've all heard about turkey. Yes, you hear about that <laughs> the turkey. Thanksgiving make, tryptophan. Yeah, and then it makes you sleepy. Well, the whole reason that that is even talked about is because tryptophan is the precursor molecule for serotonin production, but serotonin is upstream of melatonin production. And so what happens is if you don't have enough protein in your diet or not consuming consuming enough tryptophan, you will not produce serotonin and you will not produce melatonin. Hence, you will have things like depression might be more common and you will have trouble sleeping. That pathway could be affected, have nothing to do with glutamate. The other thing people don't realize is that for those conversions to happen, we need vitamins and minerals as cofactors. And it means that for an enzyme to function, we have to have them present. Well, so all it takes is a deficiency in one of them, even though there are multiple that are used, to cause that that pathway to not function properly. And so it, it just so happens that the brain, for the brain, it is vitally important that you get animal protein in your diet. Um, and if you're not going to do animal protein, you're going to have to supplement. The problem I have with the whole supplement, so I hear this a lot. People are like, oh, it's fine. I'll supplement, you know. It's really this first world response right. that people give. Um, and I've done work in developing countries, and I really am bothered by that type of response. You know, if we're in a developing country and I'm giving nutrition advice to how to improve diet to treat something, we would never recommend a vegan diet in a developing country. Even that little bit of animal protein here and there can make such a vital difference in the health of these individuals. Another thing that would be affected is immune function. In low-protein diets, we tend to see immune function go down, and, and that's something that's kind of ignored. People won't even pay attention to it because the person may not be having symptoms anywhere else, but all of a sudden they're just getting sick a little more frequently. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just so happens that our body needs protein in other ways. So, um, yeah, I would say my my big picture take-home message is the brain is very affected by diet and to not underestimate that. And that what you're excluding does not ever make a good diet. And this is a huge, important point. Yes, say it again. Yes, yeah. So I have people come up to me all the time, and they will tell me what they're excluding and then ask me if I think they have a healthy diet. And I I just laugh and shake my head, and I go, you could be eating nothing. I would have no idea if you have a healthy diet. If we want a true healthy diet, it's all about what you are getting. Are you getting all those micronutrients? Are you getting enough protein, right? And that uh, a lot of the macronutrients get a lot of attention, more attention than the micronutrients. But vitamins and minerals are vital yeah. for proper functioning of the brain. So, Yeah, that is one of those things that you said one time in class or in a conversation, and it just smacked me across the face that don't like I don't care what you don't eat. I care what you do eat. Don't define your diet by what you exclude. What do you eat? And it really hit me because I grew up vegetarian, Mm -hmm. so very much this is what I exclude. Then I realized that I had a dairy sensitivity, so again, this is what I exclude. What I ended up including when I cut out dairy was tons of hydrogenated soybean oil, just an unlimited amount because it was dairy-free. Right. Whoopsie. (laughs) Regret. But 
my entire life, pretty much up until I met you, so like age 33, was defining my diet by what I excluded. And luckily, Mm -hmm. I love to cook. I love to ferment. I am geared towards healthy eating. I grew up eating a vegetable-rich diet. But still, if I had a day where I was eating nothing but sort of treats or whatever, I wouldn't think that much of it because, well, it was gluten-free and it was dairy-free and, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. I took my multivitamin. I'm good. Right. Once I had that very basic reframe, I just heard you say it, you know, I don't care what you don't eat. I care what you do eat. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, yeah, what do I eat? And that, even for me, someone that was already eating well, Mm -hmm. who already cooked, who had been working in natural food restaurants, that reframe changed how I eat and how I feed my kids every single day and how I advise other people to eat. Because in addition to saying, yeah, I think you should, you know, cut out these processed foods. It's also really more about crowding out the processed foods mm-hmm. with big salads. And, you know, I like to say I'm plant-based and animal decorated. Right. Um, That's a great phrase. I love that. Because I love my big, beautiful salad with six different vegetables and and then the, the pieces of animal protein on top. Right. It's so satisfying and it's beautiful to look at. And um, also from the CGM perspective, I can eat a giant plate of food, huge plate of food, vegetables and seeds and steak and just, I mean, it's massive and I'm so full afterwards and I feel great and I'll have a 20-point blood sugar response, Mm -hmm. you know. And for that 20-point rise, which then is very stable and then comes back down to a nice, calm, fasting blood sugar, I've gotten to feel full. Satisfied, nourished, calmed, you know, fueled. Whereas if I'm in a hurry, life is busy, the kids didn't finish their clementine, and I grab a handful of tortilla chips, from a calorie framework, from a restrictive framework, from a, you know, you're a woman in America, so, like, think about your calories and always restricting, I've only had, like, maybe 140 calories in this handful Mm -hmm. of tortilla chips and half a clementine. But the glucose response is huge, right. and the satiety is non-existent. I have the opposite effect. I have no satisfaction, no fuel. I'm just running on nothing, and my blood sugar is now super dysregulated. Mm-hmm. So it really has reframed for me, and if there's one message that I hope we get out here, aside from the importance of you know understanding the role of food in neurotransmission, it's that defining your diet by what it contains Right. can totally change your life. Yes, it is, it is such an important message. If we if we have people focus on healthy, nourishing food, and I love the word nourishing. Mm-hmm. It just sounds nourishing. Mm-hmm. It? Yeah, it does. But it, it really is truly what we're after, right? It's like we are, are caring for ourselves. We are putting these healthy, nourishing things in our body to give our body everything it needs to do what it does naturally when it moves toward homeostasis. And, you know, there's a, in the medical establishment, a lot of people, uh, you know, just they discount that there's an effect of diet. The diet could be powerful. Oh, but what we see in our research is quite the opposite. It is so powerful. And it, it is really striking what you can do when you take someone who's dysregulated and you improve their diet. So um, I think it's a very important point. I love that decorated with protein comment because 
there is such a plant-based movement right now, and it's not a bad thing. Plants, you, you, plants will still be the basis of your diet. The majority of your diet is still going to be plants. All of those healthy foods I mentioned, the vegetables, the fruit, the beans, the nuts, the seeds, whatever, you know, all of those things are very important. But being able to sprinkle in the animal foods throughout the day makes a big difference. So if, if people could start thinking that way, it would be really helpful. We have people who are vegan, you know, who have really bad diets. I mean, you can have, you know, a Coke and some French fries. Oreos. And that they're, <laughs> and they're vegan, right? Congrats. Right. So, you know, that if we're, we're talking about exclusion, they're, you're, you're effectively excluding. Now, there's a lot of ultra-processed food conversation, and I'm, I've been part of this. And part of what ultra-processed food, sometimes people like to picture fast food as ultra-processed food, which is correct. That is ultra-processed food. But they, they forget that we have a lot of these vegan and vegetarian processed foods. You know, the, the food industry has really responded to the want for a plant-based diet. When they hear that, they jump on it and they're creating these foods in a laboratory that are laden with additives. And so um, I study one class of additives and the effects on nervous system function, but there are many other effects of other food additives. We have thousands of food additives that are used in our food in the United States. And so I think a lot of people just, you know, don't know that they should be avoiding or not paying attention. Right. Once I teach people to pay attention and start reading ingredient labels, they're shocked. I mean, I hear it all the time. People will pick up ice cream at the grocery store and they start reading that label. And they were like, I could not read one of those words. I mm -hmm. cannot believe all this stuff is added to ice cream. Mm -hmm. and, um, and once you start seeing that and paying attention to it and you compare it to a food that's very simple, even peanut butter, which peanut butter can be made as peanuts and salt, very, very simply, that's what you want. But you'll see some other peanut butters and then you start seeing, oh, well, they're adding oils and they're adding sugar and they're adding other things. So you, you can take a simple food and see the difference. Right. But if you pick up, you know, organic butter and then margarine and you compare those two labels, you will see that they are vitally different. And one is simple and one is not. So I think I'd encourage people to start looking at their labels. Look what's in your food. Pay attention to it. Um, we really want to go back to the basics of the non-processed food items. Our bodies love to digest. And it makes our microbiome happy, which I know you love the microbiome. Yes, so. <laughs> yes. And it is. It's one of those things where um, these emulsifiers and stabilizers mm -hmm. and the role that they're playing in disrupting the microbiome is now it's it's entering into the conversation. That's right. where the microbiome science is going is, mm -hmm. hmm, what constituents in our diets mm -hmm. are disrupting the microbiome and leading to this chronic dysbiosis? And, of course, there are big things like soda antibiotics, you know, um, maybe drinking unfiltered water that has high levels of chlorine, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But these food additives that are gums and that are preservatives and, you know, some of them are like lab-created fibers, these things that change the texture of food, make it more mm -hmm. palatable, mm -hmm. uh, make it more stable, they can also cause issues in these bacteria that have not evolved to digest those things right. and might be totally thrown off their game. And right. um, one of the things that I've found interesting, you know, merging these two worlds of my interest in the microbiome with my interest in nutrition and diet for health is how certain microbes 
will not populate your body if you're not eating what they like to eat. Mm -hmm. So it opened up my curiosity about, you know, am I eating? Who am I eating for? Right. We talk, we hear a lot in in the media, of, you know, give in to your cravings, treat yourself. But who is this you that we're talking about? Is it your tongue? Is it your brain? Is it your nostalgia? Is it your gut microbiome? Is it your immune system? Like what level am I indulging? What level am I treating? And from my perspective now, if I eat a big salad with salmon on top, that's a treat because I am treating my microbiome. I am giving them the buffet of their dreams, mm -hmm. and I'm treating my nervous system to those omega-3 fatty acids, <laughs> and there's good proteins, right? Yeah. Whereas if I eat a Snickers bar or something, right? I could think of something worse probably, but it, let's just eat a candy bar, like a really processed, ooey-gooey, you know, nuggety it's got a lot of stuff going on in there and lots of preservatives. And mm -hmm. um, Halloween's coming up, folks. TBHQ, read those labels. <laughs> it's everywhere. Yeah. So these things that, yeah, they might feel like a treat for your tongue or it might feel like a treat for the part of you and you and your grandma always got a Snickers together. You know, like totally, I get that. But is it a treat? Is it really a treat for you if what you are is a symbiotic organism that is home to trillions of microorganisms who rely on you to feed them. And if you're not giving them what they eat, they're going to die. And then they can't produce neurotransmitters. They can't train your immune system. You know, they yeah. can't feed you. Well, I think you, you bring up a good point about you're feeding yourself or nourishing yourself. But I, I think we should also talk a little bit about like your taste receptors on your tongue mm -hmm. and the fact they can be modulated. Yes. So, um, and this is something that I think really helps people in the quest to eat a healthier diet. You were talking about something being a treat, your perception of something and whether it is sweet or a treat to you is going to vary depending on how many taste receptors you have for sweetness on your tongue. So just using sugar as an example, we had this move, um, decades ago where we introduced artificial sweeteners and these artificial sweeteners were like sold to dietitians. you know basically this idea was sold to dietitians to say you know all type 2 diabetics should replace sugar in their diet with these artificial sweeteners the problem though is that those are hundreds of times sweeter than sugar right and so what happens is it causes this down regulation or removal of your sweet taste receptor on your tongue so what happens is they can taste sweetness less the other thing it does is internally makes your body crave more sugar so it, it kind of worked really much against these individuals who they were trying to treat making them crave sugar and making them less able to taste sweetness on their tongue right now we can look at it in the opposite fashion that if you remove artificial sweeteners and then you start removing the amount of sugar you're consuming just lowering it over time you get expression of more sweet taste receptors on your tongue now there are dramatic examples of that if you use something like the ketogenic diet where they're removing carbohydrate mostly from the diet and you're going into starvation that will really do it but you don't have to take that kind of sledgehammer approach you can actually do it yourself by switching to healthier foods so what we find over time is that people can taste sweetness and vegetables for example that they could never taste before mm -hmm. and so if really what we're after is we want people to improve their diets and we're saying we want you to eat more fruits and vegetables we actually can make those fruits more of a treat um, 
before we started talking today, we were talking about, you know, sweet uh, fruit and like mangoes or um, things like that. And that actually, how sweet that tastes to your tongue can taste almost too sweet to some individuals once they get away from sugar. Um, And where a, a soda actually is not even appetizing because it tastes too sweet. So that's actually what we're after. If we can get people to move that direction, it makes a sweet treat much more easy to get out of something that's not as bad for them. Chocolate's a great example of a food that actually has nutrients in it. It's actually good for us in many ways, so it's a great sweet treat to have. Um, And so that's something that it doesn't hurt the microbiome. It actually can help a person get that sweet treat and get something healthy for them at the same time. Yeah. One of the things that you've mentioned a few times today and and which you also have lectured about that really moved me and helped me reframe some things in a really helpful way is the overall concept of homeostasis, that your body is always trying to restore homeostasis, that it wants to be in homeostasis. And so to me, that framework says if you're just willing to break the cycle, things can get better, right? So when you're trapped in that cycle of, I had three glasses of wine and now my body is surging glutamate, I need more wine, and you end up in this like addictive spiral of glutamate GABA, glutamate Mm -hmm. GABA, you're in this back and forth. But the back and forth is related to your body's desire Mm -hmm. to be in homeostasis. And so knowing that, if you're willing to step out of that cycle, you can have faith that over time your body will want to modulate back to baseline. Same thing with sweet things. I think a lot of people are afraid that if they reduce treats in their diet, that they will always feel deprived. And they don't like the feeling of deprivation. They like Mm -hmm. the taste of sweet. So they think, I don't want to remove these sweet things from my diet because I will feel deprived always. I will always feel like Mm -hmm. I'm missing out. When what actually happens is you increase your ability to taste sweet things, to experience the sweetness when you reduce that. I actually, again, I've just had one month of wearing this CGM. So because I'm wearing it, I have reduced my sweet intake because I don't want to see those spikes, you know? (laughs) I've like gamified it. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to spike my blood sugar. I don't want to see that on my graph. Because of that, now I notice that if I eat something with more carbohydrates, I find that my tolerance for them, my desire for them is lessened. Mm -hmm. And actually this this morning I was packing up some roasted sweet potatoes and I I eat them all the time. And I, in the past, would eat more like a plate with like half sweet potato and then my protein, right? But how I've been eating them now is like on top of a very big salad Mm -hmm. with fewer sweet potatoes because the app has like a little X by sweet potatoes. It's like too many carbs. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm going to eat them because they're delicious and nourishing, but I get it. They're very starchy and sweet. I ate one this morning and I tasted caramel. It was Mm -hmm. like a caramel syrup. And again, I've been a healthy eater for years, but just having this just down regulation of how much sweet tasting carbohydrate. I'm eating much less fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had any sugar because my child was sick. It was my birthday and I didn't have a birthday cake because I'm not mm. going to feed sugar to a sick child. You know, yeah. she was sick on my birthday. So I said, it's fine. We'll mm-hmm. have birthday salads. It's all good. Mm-hmm. Um, I still had a good birthday. Would, wouldn't you know, I still felt celebrated. Yeah. I still felt loved. It turns out you don't need sugar to yeah. celebrate a day. I'm just saying. And I'm a baker. So 
no shade meant to anyone, <laughs> right? I'm a baker, but you can celebrate a day mm-hmm. without sugar. But even just this one month of just not deprivation, just mindfully reducing sweet taste on the tongue, mm-hmm. I literally tasted caramel syrup in a sweet potato. Yeah. And that's... and It's that, a beautiful thing. It is. There's like a metaphor there for life, right? Yes. Like you can slow down and enjoy the sweetness mm-hmm. of the moment. I think I think you bring up. I, I love this example that you gave. It's excellent as far as increasing your ability to taste sweetness. There was something you said earlier um, that made me want to come back to this. They about homeostasis, and really, it's not just one lifestyle factor that keeps us in a state of homeostasis. It is really a lot of choices throughout the day. I think the basis of it starts with sleep to be honest with you, at least for me. Um, I, I'm a person who's a, I'm a morning person. Naturally, I have to work out in the morning. And I notice that if I get a good night's sleep, everything else falls in place. But that if my sleep is bad, if I'm really tired, it will affect my workout. It'll affect my water intake because I didn't work out. It'll affect the food choices I make. It's, it's interesting how one healthy behavior can really beget other healthy behaviors. So I think if we can make that point, if we really want to be in a state of homeostasis, we need to think holistically about mm-hmm. what we're doing to ourselves. And you're right, like drinking alcohol is going to throw us out. So, you know, maybe we keep that a weekend behavior, right? And I think once people realize that that alcohol is negatively affecting their sleep, then they go, okay, if I want to prioritize sleep during the week, maybe I'm not going to drink during the week. And you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Kind of examples like that where they're like um, blue light exposure before bed. If it's negatively affecting their sleep, maybe they start reading a book instead, you know, that sort of thing. These little things can make a big difference. And it really does reinforce the healthy eating behavior too, because it makes us feel good, you know? And that I think is the goal, is really about feeling good. I'm a big advocate for what's called health span. I'm sure you've heard this term, you know, rather than just talking about longevity and lifespan and, you know, because, yeah, you could try to sell me on all these things I can do to make my life, you know, live a long time, but I could get hit by a bus tomorrow and, you know, all bets are off. So really what I care about is feeling good and feeling like I can do everything I want to do on a daily basis. Yeah. And for everyone that I think is a better goal is to like, what is your lifestyle right now? Do you feel good on a daily basis? You mentioned earlier the fact that people seem more sensitive. I think really what's happening is when you have a good diet and your symptoms go away, you kind of forget because mm-hmm. it's like your your baseline's been lowered and mm-hmm. now you you know how it is to feel good. And now when you have the effect from having some glutamate, let's say if a person's sensitive, now it feels profound because they're not having those symptoms every day, right? Mm-hmm. They actually remembered what it was to feel good. And I hear that all the time. Some of the mental health things I hear. I've had, I've literally had people in studies where um, I've, they've come back to me later on and said, I'm so glad that I did this study because I had been depressed for 20 years and I literally didn't think I had the ability to feel happy again. Mm-hmm. And I am happy now. I laugh. I smile. I enjoy time with my loved ones. You know, that, ha- I mean, let's put a price on that, right? When we talk about health, 
I think that mental health piece is also huge. And um, it's so powerful if we can think about, you know, can we make ourselves feel good and feel happy? Can we, can we experience that on a daily basis, you know? Um, that should be our goal, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think that there is a personalization aspect to that, which is important and often missing from the sort of medical conversation around health versus not health or, um, you know, lifespan versus health span in the sense of, for example, for me, I'm a mom. I have three kids. They get bigger every day. I mean, they plateau eventually, but most of them are still growing. And I like to know, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel happy to know that I can pick them up and run around with them. Mm -hmm. When I go to the park with my littlest one, I can chase her at a dead sprint. Mm -hmm. I can climb up the pole and, you know, be a monster and, and really engage with her. I can get down on the floor like... There's a freedom that I have in mm-hmm. my body because I do many things to achieve that. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of those things might not look that free to a different person. They might define their joy, their happiness a little bit differently. Maybe for someone else, being able to do girls' night once a week and have that glass of wine with the girls, like that's critical to their happiness. Mm-hmm. That's fine if that's part of your packet of things that go into your health span. For me, that's not part of my life right now, right? I have three kids. I have a lot going on. That has Mm -hmm. fallen off the table. Maybe it's part of my life in my 50s or 60s, right? But right now it's like, can I get up every day and be present with my children? Can I read scientific articles and translate them into something meaningful to other people? Can I engage Mm -hmm. with other intellectuals, can I create new thoughts? Can I solve big problems, right? Those are part of my health span. Mm -hmm. And do I feel comfortable in my body? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that part of what I would, you know, if I was making a dream vision board for the U.S. healthcare system, Mm -hmm. it would involve maybe health coaches in every doctor's office taking that time to sit with patients and say to them, like, how would you define optimal health. I don't want to tell you what your optimal health looks like. You know, Mm -hmm. yes, I want to see a cholesterol level of this or a, you know, blood pressure of that. But like, how long are you looking to live? You know, when do you want to travel? For how many years do you want to take the stairs? Mm -hmm. For how many years do you want to be able to pick up your grandkids? Those kinds of questions, those qualitative questions, I think, are often missing. But like you're saying, they kind of come back to you. You realize the importance of them when you feel better. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I didn't realize. Like, for example, if you had a nagging lower back injury for two months mm-hmm. and you finally rehabbed it and brought down your inflammation, it's like, I didn't realize how meaningful it was to me to be able to tie my shoe without pain. Right. You know, I wouldn't have had that on my list earlier, but yeah. now I do, right. right? So similarly, like for me, it's like, oh, like, When I was 18, if you had asked me, I wouldn't have said, like, being able to put my 40-pound toddler on my back and walk four miles, that wouldn't have been on my list. But now it is. So I just just want to interject that, like, the personalization of the health span and helping each person know what their reason 
and their qualitative analysis of their own health really looks like. Right. And I think, we, I think we do that more with elderly people. Right mm-hmm. now, there's a lot of conversation because, you know, we talk about activities of daily living and right. can they do them or they can't do them. And But maybe that conversation's too late, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we have a lot of people in even their 50s, for example, who are on a lot of medications and they aren't doing everything they wanted to do, right? And so they may not be at that stage of being elderly where they're having any conversations, but they may not be feeling their best. And they're they're an age group where they're, you know, approaching, they're getting into their 60s, they're starting to think about retirement and what retirement might look like. And um, I think we've kind of have a culture where so many people are on medication, so many people are sick right. or less functional as they get up to those age groups that maybe people are thinking that's normal. That's normal aging. And in reality, maybe it doesn't have to be. Maybe we can push that envelope and and feel better, right? And the same goes for teenage anxiety. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, we normalize elderly people not being able to carry their own groceries, but we also normalize teenagers not being able to function because they're so stressed out that they shut down and they don't want to go to class and, Mm -hmm. you know, they want to just stay in their room all day. I think, um, of course, we should... Uh, normalize it to the extent that we can talk about it mm-hmm. and address it and not put shame on it, not drive it underground. Oh, right. But when we normalize it in a way where we go, well, that's just how it is. Teens mm-hmm. have a lot of anxiety. Then I think we're, like you just said, we're not having the health span conversation early enough. We're not saying to a 16-year-old girl, what would be optimal health for you? What are all of the things that you would like to feel capable of doing? Maybe one of them is speaking in front of a room. Maybe one of them is hosting a party and not having like sweat through your dress because you're so stressed out about it, right? right? How can we start having those conversations about quality of health earlier? Right, right. I think that is extremely important. Hmm. Well, we'll just table that for now. Policy conversation. (laughs) Okay, one other policy, quick pivot, one other policy thing. You mentioned earlier the health, uh, like you said, like third world countries, somebody having a diet issue, you wouldn't recommend a vegan diet. You'd always want to include some animal protein. And it made me think of the sort of misguided, my, my word, my view, misguided health equity conversation around um, vegan protein sources. Because there's a lot of conversation around, well, we can't all eat meat. There's so many people. We have to adopt this plant-based diet. You know, lab-generated meats and these artificial meats are the future. And also um, insects, you know, uh, like bug protein, cricket protein, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was at a global health conference last year. And I was in this talk about, you know, global health equity. And they were just going on and on about pea protein and insect protein and how everybody has to eat them. It's going to be great. And after the talk, I went up to one of the people that was speaking and I said, hi, you know, I'm a health policy student and also a food allergy mom. And I'm not hearing anyone in the health equity, global health conversation talking about the exponential explosion of food allergy diagnosis among minority and low income populations. Mm -hmm. And guess what some of these biggest allergens are? Pea protein. It's one of the most growing Uh, It's one of the fastest growing allergy substances. So it has uh, a relationship to peanuts, right? But pea by itself is Mm -hmm. growing in Mm -hmm. allergenicity or allergic response. And then uh, for people with a shellfish allergy, which is one of the most common, you know, top eight, traditional, very Mm -hmm. well-known allergy, they are often cross-reactive 
to the insects that have those hard shells. There's warnings on cricket protein bars. So there's a lack of conversation within the sort of health equity and global health framework, which is currently kind of pushing this, um, you know, vegan and insect forward diet around the fact that for people with food allergies, those diets would, they would literally kill them. Um, Speaking as a food allergy mom, when my daughter was little, she could not, she was allergic to every single vegetarian protein source. In fact, that's why I stopped being a vegan. I was a vegan and then I gave birth to a kid who couldn't be a vegan. So I <laughs> cried and I cooked a chicken. I literally cried. Um, I've cried many times while cooking meat for my child. <laughs> it's been a process, but you know, I had to get through it because her body needed it. Yeah. So where do you see this conversation going? How can we include the importance of nourishing whole foods and sustainable production of those foods? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how can we sort of counter the drive to push mass processed foods as a solution to global health and hunger? Well, I think you have to look at what's driving the mass production of meat right now, right? And if you look at these, like feedlot beef mm-hmm. is bad for the environment, it's bad for human health, it is bad for those cows. Mm-hmm. It is, it's not good for anybody. So that feedlot beef production is driven very much so by fast food. So this, if you, you know, I think a lot of times vegans will say, oh, we have to get everybody to stop eating meat, right? But maybe the answer is not to get everyone to stop eating meat, but to switch their thinking about meat being in their diet in a smaller sense, right? Instead of getting rid of it completely. If you get people to switch to grass-fed organic beef, that cannot be produced in a feedlot. They're not eating fast food anymore, and they're eating it just sporadically, you know, maybe once or twice a week, as opposed to multiple meals, multiple days, right, out of the week. You're talking about a change in production that's going to happen, right? If you could drive people to do that. But you didn't have to make someone be vegan to do so. And I think that that middle ground is not being talked about. Mm -hmm. I've heard people speak on, oh, we're going to run out of food, you know, (laughs) it's going to be famine everywhere. But then you you want to talk about food waste. If you look in our country specifically at the amount of food that is wasted, it's ridiculous. I mean, it, it is disgusting how much food is wasted. So I don't think, I, I think it's, it's short-sighted for people to be having that conversation right now, acting like we're running out of food and everyone has to be vegan to solve the problem. I think we just need to kind of go back to that balanced approach. It's kind of like people who talk about, well, something's local and that's great because it has less, you know, impact on the environment because it hasn't been transported as far. But yet they may be eating a Beyond Burger that actually has environmental impact to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Or the use of pesticides, for example, which is very, very bad for the environment, bad for human health. And yet they don't talk about pesticides and they're talking about the environment. So... I think you have to have all the pieces in the in the conversation and be more, be more balanced in the approach. I'm a huge fan for regenerative agriculture, and this is a very balanced approach between animal husbandry and the production of food 
and not using pesticides. You know. Soil health. Exactly. The microbiome. Microbiome, <laughs> yes. It affects the it's microbiome. It's all there, folks. It is. And it's so it, it's a beautiful example of something that is really good for the earth. It's good for the animals. It's good for the humans. Everybody wins. The microbes are happy. So I there there is a solution there. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just I think that there's not enough conversation around that. And and I know I've heard people speak, you know, that we might have to get away from big agriculture and go back to smaller farms. And I think that is true, Um, that the larger farms and, you know, the fact that we're giving money to people with mono agriculture that, you know, have one crop and they're producing this because it's subsidized. And so there's a lot of push for soy, right? It's not... It's not surprising that you're seeing more pea allergies because when you drive consumption of a food and make it a primary food source, you're going to see more allergies to it. We don't have a lot of rice allergy in our country, but in Asia where rice is commonly consumed, they have more rice allergy. Mm-hmm. It's just what we're exposed to more. We actually had that experience when my oldest was little. Um, you know, she was gluten-free and had so many allergies and her diet became like half rice. And at one point she tested positive for a rice allergy. Mm -hmm. Um, She wasn't having any symptoms that we could tell, but it really highlighted for me that just this chronic exposure to a food product in a body that was already inflamed and predisposed to developing allergic Mm -hmm. tendencies, it caused her to show this reaction to rice, which luckily was not long-term and it abated, but it was very interesting. And yes, I then looked into it and there's a huge problem with rice allergy in Asia, even though in this country we think of rice as the most allergy friendly mm-hmm. food. Similarly, we think of sunflower as an alternative to peanuts, but sunflower allergy is on the rise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a moving target, the allergy conversation. But I think that because the allergy conversation is related to the balanced immune system conversation, which is related to the microbiome conversation, which is related to the soil microbiome conversation, which is related to the sustainable agriculture conversation. It's all connected. Right. And you know, when we talk about our microbiome, if you want to make your microbiome really happy, it it loves it if you can consume small amounts of lots of different things, right? And so we talk about people trying to get like 32 different plants in their diet every single day. When I say that to someone, you know, people in our our studies, we, we tell them at a minimum, they have to have three vegetables and two fruits. But then I say this, if I say 32 plant foods, they're like, what? That's impossible, right? You can't eat that much. But then you have to kind of, put it in perspective. So when I start describing it to them and I was like, okay, every plant food counts, but also things like herbs and spices right. and tea and everything else you can actually get. It's not that hard to get 30 diff- two different plant foods in your diet, but you might have really small quantities of mm-hmm. things. And that is great. In an ideal world, we would eat small quantities of lots of different things. It's just harder. <laughs> you know, we don't do it. It just takes more time. You know, a lot of people who don't cook, they're very intimidated. The more herbs and spices that you have to add to something just seems like too much. But getting in that habit and learning how to, like if I was making soup, for example, I have lots of different vegetables that I'd be putting in that soup, but I'm also going to be putting a ton of different herbs and spices in my soup. And each of those counts. Or if you have like chai tea and all of the different spices that go into chai tea, those all count. So um, it, it kind of helps people have a perspective that your microbiome really likes diversity. If you want a diverse microbiome, which is healthier for you, you have to have a diverse diet. 
Or you could just have one artificial flavoring that tastes like six spices and <laughs> save yourself all that trouble of those pesky, nourishing foods. Right. Who needs them? Right. Thank you, food industry, for solving <laughs> that problem for us. Yeah. Very grateful. A few months ago, or maybe even a couple years ago, mm -hmm. there was a rise in anti-Asian um, there were hate crimes against Asian populations. Mm -hmm. And so there was a movement, rightfully so, to say stop Asian hate. Right. Very important, tied into the pandemic, obviously. We all experienced it. It was a dark time in the country. Mm -hmm. In response to this, in a strange twist, the Whole30 diet announced that they were no longer going to recommend restricting MSG on the Whole30 diet, a diet which the entire point is to cut out all food additives and also cut out things like beans, which are a staple for many populations all over the globe, mm -hmm. because they felt someone somewhere felt that saying that you should remove MSG from this diet was somehow a dig at Asian populations or was inherently prejudiced. Um, so I'm wondering if you've ever gotten that feedback on the low glutamate diet and how do you and how can we, again, as health educators and people trying to just promote the idea that foods can impact people, especially sensitive populations, how can we reframe this conversation and help people understand that it's not about attacking one culture's food additive of choice. There are many food additives that we want to mm -hmm. go after um, and that we need to be able to talk about the potential dangers of a food additive without targeting a specific culture. Right. So I definitely do not ever target a specific culture in my work. And I don't just talk about MSG, but I think part of the problem is that monosodium glutamate is MSG. So you have a sodium molecule attached to glutamate. Um, when you consume it, it immediately dissociates. So sodium has a flavor on your tongue and glutamate excites neurons in your tongue. Um, so of course it tastes wonderful. Um, it has been used for many years. What happened was back in, it was like 1980 probably, um, we had this, uh, there was a doctor actually, uh, Dr. Schwartz, who had a reaction after eating Chinese food. And he realized that it was because of the MSG and the Chinese food that he had this reaction. So it got coined a Chinese restaurant syndrome. And um, there seems like there's a combination of a reaction to glutamate and a reaction to histamine, mm -hmm. uh, which that... Chinese food's just a little higher in histamine in general. Um, and this kind of spectrum of symptoms comes on acutely within an hour. And so you have people who are talking about a headache and sweating and tachycardia, sometimes neck pain, things like that. This spectrum of symptoms is not common in the population. There is a subset of the population that has it. But when that came out and the fact that they called it Chinese restaurant syndrome ended up creating attention on Chinese restaurants in, in particular. So at the time, I'll re I remember people, you know, these restaurants putting signs up in their windows saying no MSG used here. And they were trying to market that to say, you know, don't stop coming to our restaurant because of it. Um, and this was unfortunate. Um, and so there was a tie between MSG 
and Chinese restaurants using MSG. But MSG was not just used in Chinese restaurants, right? It was being used as a food additive in lots of other places. But that's kind of how that tie occurred. Now, it is produced by Anjinomoto, which is a a Japanese company. um, And so you could have that association with it as well. But um, I think a lot of people mistakenly will talk about glutamate. They will call all glutamate sources MSG. I have heard that. Yes. And I think it's just because MSG was that, you know, the food additive that people knew of, that they'd heard of. And now there are a lot of people trying to fight back to say, MSG doesn't bother me. MSG should be added to everything. It tastes great. It does taste great. (laughs) I don't think anyone's arguing with the taste of it. And it is a subset of the population that appears to be sensitive. But it's not like we just say, oh, avoid MSG. But that is, I think, some people, they realize they're sensitive because they see MSG and they realize a reaction, and they don't even realize that free glutamate is found in these other locations, and that ideally they have to avoid those other things as well. It's just that their attention's on the MSG. If they figure out that these other things bother them, then they start using that term. So. We do a lot of education around that to try to say it is not all MSG. MSG is actually a specific product that is marketed and sold. So you're actually, your reaction is to free glutamate. Um, And for example, I mentioned aged cheeses are high in free glutamate. So Parmesan cheese has to be excluded on the low glutamate diet. And I I make a joke, you know, I'm not out to get Italians by telling them they can't have Parmesan cheese anymore. You know, that would be the equivalent, right? Right. And so it it really doesn't have anything to do with um, specific ethnic, you know, fair, if you will. Um, Now, there are some other things in Asian cuisine, like soy sauce is a source, fish sauces are a source. So you can get a little bit more exposure there, but it's not like people just, you know, are avoiding this one cuisine. I think that this is... um, has become something that's being said on social media from what I've heard. I have not heard it at all from individuals in my research studies. Yeah, it's really young people coming up to me saying, I'm seeing this on TikTok, you know. Um, And I think for the glutamate industry, they're probably riding this wave trying to push back. uh, And I don't blame them for that, you know. Um, They're this is their product and their right. livelihood. <laughs> they're, they're like saying, hey, you know, we can say something about this. Right. Um, so I, I, that's what I think people just need to, to realize it's bigger. They should not be calling all glutamate MSG. It's not the same thing. Does it have the same reaction as MSG? Yes. yes. In people who are sensitive, it does. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I think so. I just think it's really important to separate this sort of as you say, 1980s cultural connotation of MSG with Asian cultures and Asian foods and be very clear that it has nothing to do with discrimination. It has nothing to do with any ethnicity. I mean, bone broth is not owned by one ethnicity or another collagen powder, um, except maybe like, you know, the TikTok culture might (laughs) might have claimed a collagen. (laughs) Um, But otherwise, there's no sort of connotation, but there's this unfortunate relationship that I think... It could be preventing someone from trying a healthy for them diet, right? If they're having migraines or having sleep issues or having any kind of issue that could be um, impacted or benefited by a low glutamate diet, if they're resistant to trying that diet because they've heard that somehow excluding MSG is racist inherently 
or, you know, promotes a culture of intolerance, that that could stand in their way. So that's why I bring it up because I feel like yeah. it's an unfair association on many levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just sort of want the the public record to show that yes. it has nothing to do with cultural relationships. It's all. just about a neurotransmitter and an amino acid. <laughs> right, exactly. And people who are sensitive are sensitive to it in any form. Yeah. And to be honest with you, in the U.S., the majority of our exposures are outside of MSG. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> They're really to other things. Autolyzed yeast been... extract it's... is one of those bad boys that if you flip a label over and you're buying any, you know, a, an instant soup, yeah. um, a vegetarian burger, um, any kind of like frozen cuisine or processed mm-hmm. chip with like a powdery substance on top. Right. It probably has autolyzed yeast extract. And it's one of those ingredients that you can read by quickly because mm-hmm. you go, mm, autolyzed, not sure what that means. Yeast, I know what that is. Extract. Okay, so like less of it. Fine. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. And I now know it is a neurotoxin. <laughs> right. We have, I just actually had a migraine patient uh, who um, was in a study who actually just came back to me to say that she accidentally bought some chicken and the chicken had autolyzed yeast extract in it. And she didn't realize it. She just hadn't read the label very clearly and there weren't a lot of ingredients in it. Mm-hmm. And she ended up getting a migraine and she knew it because she had the migraine. So she started searching going, okay, what was it? Mm-hmm. And found out that she had bought the chicken with the autolyzed yeast extract in it. So it's a great example. I think because of the backlash in the 80s against MSG, I mean, the food industry doesn't really want to put monosodium glutamate in their products as much. So you have other things like autolyzed yeast extract that can be used instead. Um, Powdered tamari. That's a popular one, too. Yeah. There are lots of names, unfortunately, that it can be hidden under. So it's just a, yeah, it's it's a little more complicated <laughs> than your typical thing where it's just one thing you're looking for. Yeah. Um, I do see monosodium glutamate still in soup and uh, things like chips, like Doritos. Um, you'll see it in the long list of ingredients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it does, it, it does sort of point back to the importance of being willing to slow down and read a food label because... Right. Um, you know, maybe you're just reading it to see all the good stuff that's in it and to get excited about all those nourishing <laughs> ingredients. But I had an experience recently where there's a product that I buy my glutamate-sensitive daughter all the time. It's a uh, dairy-free ice cream from this company, Oatly. And mm-hmm. I've read the label a million times. It doesn't have any pea protein. A lot of dairy-free ice creams do have pea protein. Mm-hmm. I've stopped buying almost all of them because pea protein is like the darling ingredient of all of these dairy-free ice creams. Mm-hmm. It makes it creamier. It gives it some body. So they're off the list. But the Oatly brand, no pea protein. So she's had that a bunch of times. Great. No problem. One day we're at the store and we notice that Oatly now has a yogurt. And literally the package, it just looks like a mini ice cream cup. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, yeah. a new yogurt. We'll yeah. try it. So we bring it home. She opens it. She tastes it. She hates it. If you don't eat pea protein and then you do eat it, it has a very bitter taste. Once mm. you've taken it out of your diet and then you taste it on the tongue, there's like there's like an industrial flavor to it that I never noticed when I used to consume it all the time. And now it's like instant. Mm-hmm. So she immediately is like, I hate this yogurt. <laughs> and I was like, okay, sure. I'll throw it away. And as I'm walking to the trash, I flip the label mm-hmm. and... Because it's shelf-stable and it's not frozen, whatever they're doing to emulsify the frozen product must not be enough Mm -hmm. for the yogurt cup that sits cold but not frozen. And so it's jam-packed 
with pea protein. Mm -hmm. And so me, a label reader, a mom of many allergic and sensitive children, Mm -hmm. I thought, here's a product that I know. Yeah. And I just grabbed it. So it's just, it's a constant, it's a moving target and Mm -hmm. it is complicated and it it comes in many forms. So all of that being said, Mm -hmm. if people want to learn more about this, maybe they've heard something that resonates with them or they're just curious, Mm -hmm. where can they learn more about your work, Mm -hmm. about your current research, Mm -hmm. and just more about the low glutamate diet and the role of glutamate in neurotransmission? Well, I am writing a book on the low glutamate diet, so um, hopefully that will come out in the next year or so. So that would be something to keep an eye out for if they want more information. And that will give a lot of detail and kind of hand-holding and recipes and things that I think will be very, very helpful. Um, But right now, um, they actually, I mean... I'm out there on the internet, so I mean, they can find me on the internet if they're interested in the research work, you know, but um, as far as getting that information that might help them or a loved one, um, it's coming. <laughs> Amazing. Well, yeah. well, we'll have to have you back on the podcast when okay. the book comes out so okay. we can talk about the book and promote it and spread the good word. And if you want okay. like a someone to proofread it just because they would love to read it, more than happy to volunteer. <laughs> would love to get a, an insider's peek. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming today on the podcast. Um, Like I say, I won't keep you for 10 hours because I could, (laughs) because I always have, I have like a list of questions that I keep for you because you always have so many important and meaningful and deep and wise and informed things to share. Um, But I really want to thank you genuinely for coming and sharing them here so that we can share them more broadly. And thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for being curious. You know, you were a mom, you had a lot going on. And you thought, no, I need to study this. I need to change everything I'm doing and get back in the lab. And that takes courage. And that takes, uh, you know, a kind of like willingness to change and adapt that not everyone has access to. So thank you for your courage and for your work. It has benefited me. And I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you once again for listening to the Marion Flaxman Network podcast. For more information on me, Marion, please visit my website at marionflaxman.com. For more information on my guest, Dr. Katie Holton, and her nutritional neuroscience lab at American University, please find the link in the show notes. This episode was sponsored by Informed Solutions Consulting and produced by Brain Trust Productions. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>